All right, so if you have a Bible that you can open or a phone to pull up, I'm gonna keep saying that every time because I love seeing you looking at your Bibles when I'm reading scripture. There's something about the visual and the audible that make a difference. Uh, we're gonna read from Acts 2, continuing our series through Acts. And I'm gonna do, this might happen occasionally, I'm gonna do a little backtrack into some of the text Tabitha was working with and move us forward into some new ground. Um, I'm a big context guy, you know that, so we're always feeling around the space. Um, so Acts 2, verse 37 is where we're gonna start, and we'll move through to verse 47. So Acts 2, 37. When the people heard this, and this being Peter's sermon after Pentecost, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. All right. I included the end of Peter's sermon here because Peter is giving us the run-up to a burgeoning revival, new, sudden. Imagine if, if thousands of people suddenly crowded around this church and wanted to see. Imagine if that kind of transformation happened to the community, what you would have on your hands, right? Thousands of people who had been convicted from a sermon preached out a window that just funnel in and imagine this kind of energy that's happening. There's something fueling this revival and it's pouring people into community. So today I wanna to talk about this community and how it is a portrait, God's portrait of freedom, okay? This community that we see in verse 42 through 47 is God's portrait of what Christian freedom looks like, true spiritual freedom takes place not in everybody doing their thing, but in the verses of 42 through 47, serving each other, eating together. H how is this possible? What kind of upside down world is this 
where this is God's definition of freedom. And that's where I want to, I want to bring us into that space. I want to, like Peter is doing with his sermon, help us understand the world and the paradigm, the view, the lens that God is giving us to change our understanding of freedom. So I'm going to start with, I'm going to start with a couple things here. Okay, when I thought of being set free, right, the first thing that came to my mind was a, a, a well-known time in American history when Abraham Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation, right, and set free the slaves that were being held in the American South. Now, I don't, I, I'm not a huge history buff, so I love every time I get a chance to read about history. Do you know when that was signed? You know, you might think it was signed at the start of the war, at the end of the war. It was, started, it was signed in the middle of the war, 1863, in the midst of the Civil War. And I was reading at the National Archives that the proclamation declared that all persons held as slaves within the rebellious states are henceforward and henceforwards shall be free. Okay, this is happening in the middle. Imagine that moment in the struggle when suddenly from the windowsill, is shouted out to the nation, to the thousands, you're set free. In a letter from Hannah Johnson, mother of a northern black soldier, writing to Abraham Lincoln, she said, when you are dead and in heaven, Lincoln, in a thousand years, that action of yours will make the angels sing your praises. Just, just get into that for a moment, that heart that she had, hearing those words proclaimed from the nation's capital. It was done when Lincoln declared it, right? It was decreed, but it still had to be carried out in a bloody war. Those slaves that heard that message, the message got to them in the South, were still serving their masters, though they were declared free. Nevertheless, in the words of the National Archives, it captured the hearts and imagination of millions of African Americans and fundamentally transformed the character of the war from a war for the Union into a war for freedom. Think, think about that change that's happening. This is no longer one side versus the other. This is a war for freedom. What a move. The proclamation announced the acceptance of black men also into the Union Army and Navy, enabling the liberated to become liberators. The liberated to become liberators. And by the end of the war, almost 200,000 black soldiers and sailors had fought for the Union and freedom. Powerful what words do when they come from a place of the ruler when they are a decree that is absolute and is carried out and is stood behind and is represented and said, this herefore too shall be. Paul writes in Galatians 5.1, for freedom, Christ has set us free from the slavery of sin. For freedom, Christ has set us free from the slavery of sin. Now, I, I could just stop there and pivot and keep going on the story, but here's the reality. It felt a little weird for me writing this and a little weird for me preaching to all of you in this room, not a soul of us black, not a soul of us with, to my knowledge, an ancestor who was enslaved in the South, to say that that, that should help you get into the scenario. Because it implies a certain kind of innocence to ourselves, 
right? We, we don't, in that paradigm, in that, in, that, in that story, we don't think of anything with the slaves being a sin that they're doing. No, they, they are enslaved. It's like the Israelites in Egypt under Pharaoh. He's the bad guy, right? But the plot thickens with us as Christians. We know better than to think we are the innocent ones being freed from the devil. So let me go a step closer to reality for us. Some of you may know this bit of history as well, that for 47 years, the apartheid program in South Africa was an extreme form of racial, racial prejudice and segregation. It came about that we found that there was heinous government-sanctioned hidden acts of crime and corruption against black Africans. And as a result, there was a tremendous amount of vigilante justice and payback crimes, right? So you had, you had black gangs on the street killing white people. You had white people getting them back. It, was just, it just became a chaotic mess. How do you solve that problem? See, now we're getting a little closer to home with sin. Now we're getting a little closer to what it means when God sets us free from sin because we are not innocent, not a one of us. Certainly there are larger and smaller sins we commit. Murder is not the same as stealing a pack of gum in a store, but the point is that none of us can claim innocence. And so the South African government, when Nelson Mandela was released from prison, became and was elected president, black president of South Africa. He had a massive dilemma on his hands. How do you begin to sort this out to create some sense of justice? Sure, there is now freedom. We have removed the segregation. We have set the people free, so to speak. But what do we do about all these crimes? So they started something called the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. I think I've talked about this a time or two before. This has made a huge impact on me. And the, the, the principle of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission was that they would allow amnesty. What's amnesty? Official pardon, political pardon of people who have committed offenses against the law, crimes. It's, it's a blanket pardon. It's a blank slate. And they said, if you will disclose everything you did, you will have amnesty. If you stand up at the mic, and you disclose the way you just did horrible acts so that the people that you did it against can know and can hear that. We will provide you pardon. Imagine, I mean, you can watch some of the videos of these. It's so intense to imagine hearing these. How, wait a second, okay, thank you for the story, but how can you let that person go? How is there any sense of justice and fairness in that? And yet, that amnesty is remarkable. What the Truth and Reconciliation Commission did by, was by no means perfect, but it did a remarkable impact on the people of that culture to begin to live as one nation again. So, this amnesty is an incomplete picture of human justice, but it gets us one step closer of what's happening to us in Galatians 5.1, when Paul is saying, so you are set free for freedom. You are set free. The point of the amnesty is for you to embrace and continue to create increasing freedom for your nation, for your people, for your community. But see, we receive more than spiritual amnesty even. 
We receive something even deeper than amnesty. We receive a loving king who gives us every chance at redemption. But we also know that he will bring every heart to final justice. The, the Christian spiritual image is deeper and more perfect and more just. It's what both the emancipation and the truth and reconciliation, what everybody is looking for to get to the bottom of how do we deal with this. Romans 5, 6, Paul writes, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for the righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not God pardoned us. Christ died for us. Now, put yourself in the hearer's shoes of Peter's sermon. And I'm going to push you even one step further, okay? Christ died for you, the guilty person. Okay, you're set free, like you're slave. Oh, but you're guilty. Okay, Christ died for your guilt. Now, one more step. Imagine if you were one of the South African white cops, right, who was on trial here, let's, pick, let's say, and or on the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, and he's admitting what he did. Say, say just prior to that, rewind the tape like a month or two. Commission hasn't even started, no amnesty granted. Say in a fit of rage to pursue justice for your people. You had run in and shot Nelson Mandela in prison and Archbishop Desmond Tutu, the two guys, chief guys behind that. You had just run in and shot them because that was the image of how you were gonna bring justice for your people who had been killed by black gang members and all of this mess. And you just killed the guy who was gonna pardon you. That's what Peter's preaching in this sermon. Like that's how real we have to get with this stuff. I'm the guy. And in my heart, I wanted it so bad, I was just gonna take you down and you're the guy that was gonna free me. Now we begin to see the gravity of the atoning sacrifice of Christ on the cross for us. If, if we can possibly humble ourselves to get to the place, to get low enough, to get inside the skin of that kind of mind that we have had at some point in our life to seek that kind of vengeance, that kind of justice. If we can do that, we can see how much we need the blood of Jesus. Because the point that I'm trying to make here is Jesus literally transformed your guilt and your shame into salvation. He literally has transformed those things into a saving grace for you. And that's what we mean when we say Christ has become our advocate. Really, when you think about it, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission was a crazy, wild experiment, right? Like this was like, some, some people described it as being a bridge over troubled waters. It, it managed to get the nation across something imperfectly, but it got them to the other side. Imagine the crazy and wild gamble, knowing the human soul, that Christ's atoning death on the cross is for each one of us. The risk, not knowing Imagine if you didn't know who was going to take that, who was going to respond to that love and that hope. 
If you and I were to do that, that would be very, very risky. In fact, in Israel's history, this kind of atonement had happened multiple times leading up to Jesus. Jesus is the perfect and greatest atoner, the the, the perfect mediator, the one who finally mediated and advocated in a complete way. But before that, we've had many of these people in Israel's history. One that I was just reading about was Moses, who at the point where Israel just like basically throws the middle finger to God when he gives them the Ten Commandments and they're down there worshiping a golden calf. God's had it. He said, let me start over with you, Moses. Let's do another Noah thing here. And let's just, let's just, you're the only good soul here. Let's just go with you. I'll make a great nation out of you, right? Keep my promise, but Israel's off their rocker. It ain't gonna work. And Moses intervenes and he says, take my life so that you can save them. Literally, I will die on their behalf. Now, Jesus, you can say it's not a crazy gamble or experiment because he knows everything, right? God knows everything. But for Moses, that that was wild. That was like insanity level love and commitment. He was like calling God's bluff or something, right? He was just walking in there and he's saying, he's saying, I have no other options but to say like, take me. And Moses there, I think, is a very reachable and understandable friend for us to understand what it looks like for us to live out that kind of community. See, I think we we just make this a lot more simple than we ought to a lot of times. We say, well, Jesus died for my sins. I'm supposed to love other people, you know. It's a very shallow read. And Peter's saying, he, he preaches this. And then in verse 47, here's what we get. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. There is an emotional impact. William Barclay, a commentator that I use quite a bit with you guys, um, talks about a a missionary story where they they were doing like this old slide presentation. They actually used a lamp to show the slides on the wall. And the, the, the cross came up after the missionary was telling this story. And a guy just runs up and he goes, I, not you, should be hanging there. I, not you, should be hanging there. That's the kind of emotional impact that fuels what will come next. The question. Always look at the question. Brothers, what shall we do? Brothers, what should we do? First, let's take this apart for a second. Brothers? These are 3,000 Jews And you have the apostles who just had the holy flames of Pentecost. And they're saying, uh, we're in the temple. There's priests here. It's the Pentecost festival. They should be the authorities. But we're going to look to you. Clearly, you're on to something. You're our authority now. You tell us what to do. That's a, that's a complete turn from their cultural history, from their familial connections. They're going to have people hating on them later that day. But they know, they know that it's the truth, and they say, what could we possibly do? And the instruction that Peter gives is repent and be baptized. Repent and be baptized. Switch to a new identity and repent and believe. 
because Luke later calls them believers. Baptism is a public profession of belief. So we know in this moment that, that Luke is writing from Peter's mouth saying, repent and believe. Barclay writes this, he says, true repentance shows a change of heart, which we see in the narrative, them being cut to the heart, but it also shows a change of action. There are some who repent but refuse to believe, okay? These are people who think they can cleanse themselves without Christ coming over them as an authority on their life. These are people who screw up. It's obvious socially, it's pointed out. They say, I'll fix that, it's okay. But they have not actually committed to Christ as the authority on their life. They just wanna fix themselves up to look good, to fit in, to avoid shame. There's repent without belief. And then there's also those who believe but refuse to repent. They're without heart change. These people eventually take Christ's death for granted. We've all been that person. And we selfishly take and eat of his body, of a salvation without a cost to ourselves, realizing that there is no such food. It's a rotten food. There is no such salvation without a cost to us because the salvation that is granted to us requires repentance and belief in a new authority, a turning, a changing of heart. But the result is beautiful. He lays it all out here so succinctly and quickly. Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Okay, so he has an instruction and then he follows it with a promise for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then Peter goes into what I would lovingly call steadfast endurance mode, which every coach understands. He warns and he pleads. <laughs> he just goes, okay, I got you. Okay, you can do this. Don't do that. You got this. Here, do this. Nope, not that. And he just sticks with them. And here Luke is summarizing and he basically says here, he says, with many other words, he warned and pleaded them. And my guess is this is kind of a summary. Save yourselves from the corrupt generation. Don't look back. Okay? The forgiveness of sins. That's a massive claim. Because in human justice, we have an imperfect solution always. The truth and reconciliation uh, commission story. If you fast forward just from 1996 when it started to 2000, there's a Wall Street Journal article that wrote this. It followed up and it said, so victims obtain a sense of truth from this, but what happens beyond that is what makes people confused and angry. In interviewing a person that was involved with, this, she, with the victim, she says, you are raised with a sense of justice that if someone does such gruesome acts, the person faces the law. But in the commission, she says, seeing a perpetrator seek amnesty leaves the victim feeling much more sad, much more grieved. You go home and feel this hole inside that still hasn't been filled. There's no closure. There's no closure in human justice. It's true. Life in prison, I wanna see them capital punishment. There's still a void at the end of any seeking for justice. Because what we really, really, really deep down desire for ourselves and everyone else is redemption. 
Redemption is the truest form of goodness, of justice. But redemption requires something on the part of the person tried, of the person guilty. It requires a change of heart. See, the amnesty set up in the Truth and Reconciliation was actually set up thus that if you spilled all the beans, if you said, this is what I did, and you publicly, I mean, it's humiliating, shameful, that you would see in the eyes of the people you're talking to, who are literally the parents of the victims, how wrong you are, and that you would change, that you would repent and believe in the freedom for black and white together in the case of the situation in South Africa. That you would follow a new sense of what truth and freedom and justice and what your nation is. So when Peter proclaims the forgiveness of sins, he's saying that, look, repent, turn, change, profess belief, and then God has got you where true justice can happen, which is redemption. That has to happen first inside of all of us, because let's not be naive about what repentance and, and belief are, okay? Sometimes those of us who experience grace get used to it, and we think, oh, repent, repent, and I'll be back in the good graces with my wife, with my friend, with my boss, with my whatever. If I just repent, then, then we'll even say this. Have you ever done this? How come you're still mad at me? I said I'm sorry. <laughs> right? I, that's all I can do. So now it's your turn. Like, you need to, you need to forgive me. Like, that, I deserve that. Right? I've done everything I can do. But repentance and even forgiveness of sins does not change the past. We can't hit undo on the past with a prayer. But, Barclay writes, when repentance comes, something happens to the past. There is God's forgiveness for what lies ahead. He said, let us be quite clear that the consequences of sin are not wiped out. Forgiveness does not abolish the consequences we have. Those are locked in time. I've literally prayed prayers before. God, could you go through the time continuum and fix something in the past? That's how badly I regret it. Could you just, you're above time, could you go? It's locked. Part of the whole free will deal, locked in time. It's happened. God will not undo that thing. But he will forgive you. He will give you the fool, the fuel to move forward. God has a justice system and redemption is the core. Grace is at the bottom. Love is that secret sauce in what creates true justice in the true spiritual world. So we have to give up hungering after false promises to satisfy real needs, right? The false promise, if you were the guy coming in with the gun and Desmond Tutu in our hypothetical situation, right? The false promise would be that if I do this, we will be vindicated. And as a nation, we will show we are strong, right? And I need that. I need that confidence. I need to have that peace. I need to have that sense of dignity. When people shouted Barabbas 
at Jesus' crucifixion, they were hungering after false promises. Free the revolutionary. This guy couldn't do what we needed. We have real needs. Rome is mistreating us. It's true. Mistreating them. And as Christians, what we need to repent for, all of us in any point in time, is hungering after false promises to satisfy those real needs. And so that's what Peter's getting at. He says, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. You have a world full of people that are, that are just pining after something in the scene to get them to fill the void, the unseen, the nagging feeling that they have. And he goes, the answer to that is in Christ and it's done. Peter is proclaiming the true revelation of God, the true king, the true father, the true savior in a world of false alternatives. False kings, false dads, false saviors. They could be people, they could be ideologies, they could be habits. Peter's proclaiming the truth. And remember, Peter is coming from personal experience. Peter has gone through this and identified himself as the criminal. And he has received in physical flush from Jesus himself forgiveness three times for his three denials. So Peter ain't talking like abstract theory. Peter is talking the real deal. It's happened to me. I'm sharing it with you. And I'm, I'm positive that the Spirit is not simply working in just a mystical poof kind of way, but that the Spirit is channeling through that experience that Peter has, lifting that in power to the revival that happens down below. Because the Spirit seeded that in Peter to begin with, that redemption from Jesus. Okay, so I'm trying to anchor in for us before we get into what the portrait of freedom looks like. I'm trying to anchor in the process, the process that's going to build that picture, the process that's going to build that picture. Barclay writes this, when repentance comes, something happens for the future. We receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, and then that power, we can win battles we never thought to win. Oftentimes, we would never even try to win them because we're hopeless about them. And it's the spirit who brings us hope. And then he writes, and resist things which by ourselves we would have been powerless to resist. And so this is what Jesus' atoning act does. You've probably heard this phrase. It's a sticky one, so I'm going to say it for you guys. Remember this. Atonement means at one meant. At one meant. You are brought at one, right? That's a great way to remember What's happening? Christ's mission is to bring you and sweep you in to what I've called the Trinitarian love fest, right? To bring you in to the Trinity community, to be at one. And he's creating an atonement community, a community built out of the atonement on the forgiveness of sins that is in at one with each other. They are forgiven people who are forgiving people. Okay? And the reason I'm, I'm laying this out so firmly and strongly for so long is because this is how verses 42 and 47 are usually taught in total isolation. 
Look at the image of the early church. Look how wonderful they were. Man, let's do that. Let's be in awe and wonders of things performed by the apostles. And, and let's share everything in common. Let's try that out. And let's sell property and just give it away. And, and, and let's meet together and break bread together. And then we'll be a great church. And then the spirit will come into us. But see, that's, that's traveling backward into it. I have a slide here for you, if any of you are familiar with Jackson Pollock, okay? The way we think about the church community is a color by number of that painting. Color by number that. And then we give up. Well, I wonder why. How does Pollock paint those? He swings paint cans over the top. He throws paint from brushes. It's all about animation. It's all about the fuel and the energy that animates a spontaneous creation, which some of us might call beauty. Some of us might say, it looks like my kid could do it. That's not the point. The point is that to get that, we're trying to color it by number. And then we give up. But this is a layered process built up. Imagine in community, all of us flinging our paintbrushes across the canvas to create something together, a work of art, fueled by all of our animated potential, our energy, the spirit within us. And now you get to a place where you can really understand the product from the process, the product that we see in verse 42 and 47. Does that make sense? Okay. Because this has made me so frustrated for so long, us looking at the image and trying to replicate it. And what you always get, I mean, paint by numbers are cool, but they're never as satisfying when you're done with them as you think. Like they never look quite as good as the picture on the box. The painting they're supposed to mimic, they never look quite like the painting. They're, they're kind of stale. They lack soul. And it's because we're approaching it from the wrong place. But God's portrait of freedom, okay, is setting us free. Setting us free where? Into community, into the Trinity, and thereby into what we see in verse 42 to 47, the early church, this thriving swarm of a church, 3,000 people self-organizing, working with Peter, probably spontaneously doing tons of cool stuff in the name of Jesus, unified. And Paul says this, he says, when you are set free into God's portrait for freedom, he likens it to being a prisoner. Ephesians 4, 1 through 3, I, Paul, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in the manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Wait, our image of freedom, John's proclaiming an image of freedom for you that will imprison you, that will make you a prisoner in Paul's metaphor. Paul, other places, calls you a citizen, which is what our church is named for. I've talked about this as having a new allegiance, a new authority. We're free because we realize the only place I want to be is that family. And that family gives me what I want from freedom. You see, what, what, what everyone wants from freedom, deep down in their core, is justice. The reason we desire democracy is because the closest thing we've found that seems to bring us closest to justice. 
And then we create and amend laws as things come up, trying and seeking to get to a just world. But the only just world is the one under Christ, within the family of the Trinity, with the presence of God dwelling in us, the gift of the Holy Spirit. Okay? The Holy, you will receive the Holy Spirit. Sometimes it says in other places, the Spirit will come with power. And I just think of that phrase, with great, great power comes great responsibility, right? And that's, that's it. Our image of freedom in this age is irresponsibility. Total liberty. I can do whatever I want. But that will create all of the injustices that we're trying to fix. So I'm not up here saying democracy down with that. No, I, I just told you it's the closest thing we've got. But I'm saying as Christians, it is not our pair, it is not our governing authority for how we ought to live. Our authority for how we ought to live is the words of Jesus, springing from the deeds of Jesus, the actions. They're two sides of the same coin. They say the same thing. The death on the cross will always, in truth, say the same truths that the words of Jesus are saying, that the words of Paul are saying, that any word that the Spirit has delivered in the Bible is saying. So when we struggle with the Bible, this is my thing, you've heard me say this before, go deeper. Head toward the cross in whatever thing you're struggling with. If it's God's violence in the Old Testament, if it's gender issues, whatever it is, go deeper toward the cross. Okay, so little biblical theology for you guys. When the Spirit is dwelling in us, that means the presence of God is in us. Throughout the Bible, until this point, the only place the presence of God would be is where he selectively chose it for a moment of time, like on Mount Sinai, or in the tabernacle, or in the temple. Starts with Eden. That's where the presence of God is, the perfect utopia, right? The, 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 the good life. And then from there on out, it's in spaces, and then it, and then it, and then it comes to the tabernacle. By the way, the tabernacle is set up in the middle and all of the tribes are built around it so they emanate out from the tabernacle. It's the center, the source, not just the authority and the presence of God, but it's, it's like the center engine. Everyone gathers around it. But now it's within us, in the center of us. And we, in our bodies, have a temple. 1 Corinthians 6, 18. You mostly hear this in health messages is ridiculous to me. Do you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with the price. So glorify God in your body. Yes, eat well, absolutely. But primarily, isn't this talking about acting well? Isn't this talking about giving up of even who you are that you woke up in the morning was grace from God? Now let's start my day. What a radical shift. What kind of death has to happen to our corrupted dreams for us to wake up with that new narrative over our life? And this begins to then speak to the sanctification, the, the, the betterment, the more just, the more true trajectory path that this community is on that is being worked out in these verses 42 through 47. This is a sanctification community. This is built in such a way that it will, in, that it will bring everyone closer to the center. 
And it's fueled by this consistent sense of repentance. And I had this image, I, I thought about this. When we repent and believe, what we've done is, if any of you guys have a house that has like a key code, right? Or let's just use a key on a lock. You've given the key to the Holy Spirit. He can get in any time. He can mess with all your stuff. He can take things. He can put things in there. He can lock you out. Like he can do anything to get you to pay attention to him, to be part of his family, to collaborate with him. When you, the reason repenting and believing is legitimately so scary for everybody you talk to that doesn't want to be a Christian and maybe for yourself, a lot of days, is that we don't want somebody to come in and mess with our stuff. We don't really trust them to mess with our stuff. But see, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. We read this and we go, amen, I want that, that sounds great. We don't think about the cost, but that cost is so good. The place that it will bring you is so rich. The redeeming that it will do to you, the sense of justice you will participate in will be so much better than your hobbies now, than, than, than your wishes and your goals now. And what it does actually is it makes us holy. It come, I had an image like this, okay? A lot of times God's holiness is communicated by fire, okay? Uh, fire is like scary. Israel's afraid of it. Because Israel's like this. It's like, okay, you got a bed of coals. Uh, I can't walk across coals unless I build calluses, right? I can't withstand fire unless I have a shield. So I just got to get a bigger shield. I got to get bigger calluses. I got to defend myself against God because I don't trust him. He might be against me. He's really powerful. I know deep within myself that I'm not enough. And so I'm going to build ways to defend myself. And that is going in the opposite direction. Holiness is like this. Holiness is like when you stick a glass jar or, or, or something that can be tempered against heat into water and you slowly warm that water up and that jar just gets burning, burning hot, but it's still intact. It, it, it absorbs it. It actually has the same properties as it. It begins to look and feel holy because it's receptive to it. It's built to take it in. It's changed its makeup and it said, I want to be something else. And then Peter goes, or Paul goes on in this Ephesians bit after a prisoner. He says, I want to walk with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. That's the kind of behaviors from holiness. That's the kind of wishes and dreams that we need to have about how we would live. Peter, Peter writes this, 1 Peter 2.9. He says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you might proclaim the excellence of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So we're a temple, the presence of God, but we're also a priesthood. Now, oftentimes I've also heard you, this used as, hey, John, we're a priesthood of believers, so I know you're the pastor, but like really I'm a priest. So me and God, we're good. And me and God can kind of go do whatever. We don't need a church because I'm a priest like me and God. 
right? I communicate to God directly as a priest. I can be in his presence, which is the opposite of what the priesthood is talking about. The priest is a mediator. The priest comes on behalf of the people. The priest is called to the highest level of holiness. The priest is a representative. The priest is supported by the community. He doesn't even have his own property, his own land. And the priest has a job to do. And one of my teachers said this so well. He says, a priest's job in the Old Testament and now as the priesthood is to stand at the intersection of hurt and hope. Church, let us be a people that stand at the intersection of hurt and hope. That means when it's all going down, we cling to the hope, we speak hope, even though it's insane. We continue to hope on the promise of Jesus. That means for a community like ours in the community of Acts 42 through 47, hope is not an option, it's required. That means any time in your week, and I hope this speaks to you because it certainly does to me, any time in your week you begin to feel hopeless. That is the devil's voice. Any single time you begin to feel hopeless, no matter what I do, my house isn't clean. No matter what I do, my kids don't behave. No matter what I do, I can't get a profit out of this business. You are listening to the voice of the devil and to a sinful and corrupt generation that is seeking to steer your hope to some false promise for the good life. All right. So now <laughs> we get to jump into the portrait and just piece it out for a moment. Luke, as the author, is doing what's called an extended summary here. We're, we're breaking from narrative. We have a little like picture, portrait, and then we're gonna go into narrative for the, like a lot of acts, right? And he's giving us this moment of defining this new burgeoning community. And I, I feel like what he's doing here is he's giving us like a flavor profile, like chef language here. Like has notes of this, tastes like this. What makes it special is the anise. What makes it special is the oregano, whatever. Like this is the properties that make this dish great. Here's a flavor profile that will help you as you see the narrative unfold. You'll see what's so beautiful and you'll be able to read those things into the narrative later in the story. What does this community taste like? Kind of like this. In a movie, you would see the image, the portrait, the scene. But what we've done looking at 37 through 41 is we've given you the behind the scenes. Okay? People walk in, they see this. They see me talking up front, or Beth praying, or Megan playing piano, and they go, that's church. Church is a guy standing up and talking for a long time, and I can hear it out the windows when I walk my dog. Churches, like some people that seem to know each other, whatever, they see the outside, but the behind the scenes is where the magic is happening, okay? The behind the scenes is what we as a church and what I think Acts does so radically is bubbling up into the visible, making impossible to ignore. And it says they devoted themselves. They're all in. They're all in, in case you missed that, the last 40 minutes. 
They're devoted. They've literally got a cocoon over their lives of this sin life, these 3,000 people. And they have broken free from it on the inside. And they're now devoted to the teaching, but they're still in a cocoon of sin that's now detached from them, but all around them. Imagine, these are Jewish people coming from Jewish families in the outskirts of town. Out in the, They're going to go back and talk about Jesus? The guy who was killed? Like the loser? They're cocooned in relationships. They're haunted by people that are going to disagree with them. People are going to call them crazy. People that are going to say they got on the wrong train. They're going to the wrong place. So for a new Christian, it's actually really encouraging to hear this. When we were at the rescue mission this week, a, a huge amount of the language is given to encouraging people and saying, you've got to forget about all of the things you built from the corrupt generation. And you've got to anchor yourselves to the community of hope. Pour in, be devoted. You can't go back there. You literally can't go back. Did you know that baptism is based out of? It's an image, a type of crossing the Red Sea. Okay? You go under the water and into life through from slavery to freedom, from false gods to following the true God. That's what baptism is a sign of. It's pointing us back there. When the Egyptians got across, guess what they started doing? I want to go back. This is too hard. I need to go back there. Food was better. I know I was enslaved, but at least I could eat. I heard a friend say this. It took one night for God to take Israel out of Egypt. And God spent 40 years taking Egypt out of Israel. You can't go back. And God tells them that over and over. He goes, there's literally a Red Sea that you can't. Like you can't. They'll kill you. They'll eat you alive. And you want to go back to that? You can't. So church, we stop. One of the first things we got to do is devote ourselves. Stop looking back. Stop being double-minded. Let God go through the sanctification process of getting 40 years of Egypt out of you. It's going to take time. Real sin has real consequences and time doesn't get reversed. Those sins are all around you. All of your sins are still out there. Haunting you. If you pay too much attention to them and grow hopeless out of the past. But God is pointing us to the hope of the future. So there's an onward momentum to this community. They're devoted to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. There's a sense that they're always moving forward. That they're creating a new bond to get to the promised Land And that bond happens moment to moment to moment, building new connections, creating a new sense of belonging. When we were at the mission this week, one of the things I got to do with Megan is she invited me to go bowling with the participants. And I was, guys, it was so wonderful. Like, you guys are going to love serving meals. I can't tell you. These people are wonderful people to get to know. And just going bowling, I was a bunch of, like, 10 new guys I didn't know. Man, I was in the ministry of fist bumps. It was like, way to go, good shot, guy gets a gutter bowl, it's okay, man, you're awesome, fist bump, fist bump. I probably did, I did more fist bumps than I've ever done in my life in one day. Because that was the onward, devoted, don't look back, you've got a friend here, 
We are going to build a bond together. I don't know you from Adam. We're going to build a bond together because we have the thing in common that is the only thing that matters to build a community of hope. I don't need to have chemistry with you. That's not what this says. And then a community of people that share the same hobbies got together and shared those hobbies in common. No, what they're sharing in common is the atonement. What they're sharing in common is the value system, the allegiance. And so they devoted themselves. Deuteronomy talks about hanging frontlets between your eyes. What these are, these are little stacks of, of biblical text that they strap to their heads. There's so much symbolism going on there. It's right over their brain. It's right between their eyes. It's how they think. It's with them every day. It looks ridiculous. Devoted themselves. Do you, do you stick things up? Do you have post-it note ministry in your home? We have a post-it note on the kitchen sink. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Right? Fools despise correction, discipline, uh, reproof. Like, those are the frontlets. We need those. We need to devote ourselves to the teachings. We need to sit under fallen but redeemed people. I mean, like sometimes I stand up here and I go, I don't, I don't want to preach. I'm not worth listening to this week. I'm honestly not worth listening to this week. Me, right? But you guys sit under here. I look down on you and you're looking to me. Not because of what the great ideas John has, but because of the apostles' teachings. Because of the spirit-led teachings from Jesus. And what this devotion does is it's formational. It's like a drumbeat. Part of encouraging regularity to church, and I'll tell you, it sounds legalistic, but the more I've seen people commit to regularity to church, the more I see them grow as believers. It's not the only measurement. It's not the only thing you need to do. It is not like, it, if we look at it this way and go through to the back, it doesn't work that way, right? But that drumbeat is formational. They share in verse 42, the breaking of bread. And by the way, they weren't just doing like wafer Dixie cup communion back then. I can't wait for us to do a cohort or something where we can literally share a meal together and say and remember the communion story together. Because this is what they were doing. They were sharing meals, but they were also remembering the Lord's Supper, which was a way for them to remember the act of Jesus' saving grace for them, for the forgiveness of sins. They devoted themselves to prayer. And there's an image to prayer that's so incredible that now with the Spirit in us, we can pray as if we're face to face with God. I mean, God's face could not be shown. You could not look on the holiness of God. But now we pray, becoming a mere image, saying, change us into holiness so that my face can look like your face. So prayer is petition. It is intercession. But prayer is also an instrument of sanctification. It's forming you to pray. It's making your face into God's face to pray. Okay? So praying is not just for what you need. Well, it is actually for what you need. It's not for what you think you need. Okay? When you pray with regularity, you are becoming more like Jesus, even in what you ask for. You stop asking for stupid stuff after a while. 
you go, I don't, I just actually don't care anymore. Like I used to pray about that. And now God, I just pray for hope. I just pray for your promises. I pray that my neighbor would know Jesus. I pray for the things that I know that you want. God, make my face more like yours. John 15, Jesus says, abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Apply that to your prayer life. Like want what God wants with your prayer. And see how that begins to strip away the corrupt generation from you. At first it will feel like fasting. It will feel like a death. You won't get to pray for the things that you selfishly want anymore. Because you have to ask, is this in line with the promises of God? And then get it out there in front of him. He wants to hear it. And everyone, so, then, so those are the four main categories, okay? Apostles teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, prayer. The next one, two, three, four, five verses elaborate on those things. They're like one-to-one elaboration. Everyone was filled with awe and wonder with the miracles and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers had everything together in common, fellowship. They sold property and possessions. They continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread, breaking of bread. They praised God and enjoyed the favor of all the people. That's prayer, gratitude. So here's a big picture right here of fellowship. All of this is actually a picture of fellowship, and this is where I want to park us. That the fellowship then becomes a sign to the world because what is Acts about? Acts is about witness. Acts is about witnessing to the ends of the earth. So this finished portrait, you don't know how it's going to look. We don't know what citizens are going to look like. You don't know what your own life is going to look like. You're going to get to the end of it and go, really? And God will say, I'm well pleased with you. Good and faithful servant. Even though that doesn't look like what you set out to make. If you devote yourselves to this kind of atonement living, you create a fellowship by its very nature. You will find yourself seeking out. You will devote yourself to it. You will be building it anywhere you go. It doesn't matter. Because that will be your dream and your goal. Jump into a new thing. Jump into a church. Jump into a small church down the street. Like this is what we do. And we bring hope. And we share. The, the, the root word, the, the Greek word for fellowship is koin, koinonia. Koinonia. Sharing, participating is how it's used. Not consuming, not I come to this is my church and I come and I hear stuff and it fills me up and I go out and that's great. But what it means is sharing, participating. It's a word for communion. It's pitching in, it's not consuming, it's collaborating. This is core team kind of language. Every church in the ideal sense, God wants everyone to be on the core team in Christian language. You're all in there saying, where can I pitch in? Where can I help? Paul talks about being a drink offering, an offering that's poured out in worship before the sacrifice, a symbol of a dedicated person to the worship of God. And then this koinonia, this fellowship, begins to mimic the Trinity and it creates within a fallen world an image or a type of Eden. 
Okay, the church is not the fully realized Eden. The kingdom will come and we will live in a physical good life for eternity in the presence of God. But the church brings together and clusters the presence together in our bodies. And in that we are accessing through each other, with each other to God. And we are creating a beautiful garden together. So I just want to, I want to just take that image and that idea of fellowship. And I want to wrap up. There's more we could go into here. But what I've just walked through are four major categories for us. First is the identity. This is the one we often miss with church. Identity. Come to church. Come to church. Everybody come to church. I want you always come to church. I don't care who you are. Come to church because church is going to help reform your identity and transform you into the likeness of Jesus. That's the power. We start with identity. And then that draws you by nature, just as Peter's sermon does, into community. And then there is a character, a flavor profile that develops around that community. And it's spurred on to mission. We're blessed to be a blessing. It says, God, the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. God can and will add where it suits his mission. So church, let's pray for multiplication. Part of our cohort rhythm is going to be closing out with some, one of us, always a different person, just praying to multiply us. This last week, put you on the, I'm going to bring you up, Noah, I hope you don't mind. Noah used the word surprise us. I love that. Surprise us, God. Just surprise this church. Like, We've bought into the hopelessness narrative. We've bought into the lament, not realizing that you're sanctifying us and you want to surprise us. Bring hope. Bring hope. Look, this is a church who's praising God and enjoying the favor with all people. The Lord added to their number, but it says, before that it says they're enjoying the favor of all people. Now, when I first read that, I thought that was enjoying the favor of the community. I, th I think it's bigger than that. I think this is a community that is infectious in our joy for others, in our desire for others to come and meet Jesus wherever they are in life. And it becomes a beautiful portrait for the outside world, an infectious one. Because look, we're not focused on that image being recreated by you. That's like horrible. We're focused on you doing the process and creating a beautiful image out of it that God will create with you. What tremendous freedom that is. So that's the witness that the church is. And that's our mission is to reveal the character of God. So I just want to remind you of this, and I'm closing. Remember this, that we all stand in the intersection of hope and hurt. To this week, you're going to walk into hurt. You're going to experience hurt. Your spouse is going to be hurting. Your friend is going to be hurting. You, you're going to have somebody dying. You're going to have somebody sick. You're going to have somebody in trouble at their job. You're going to have somebody uninspired, listless, feeling like they're going nowhere. Stand in the intersection 
and tap into the hope as a priest and help people see the deep spiritual true freedom that's offered them. Let's pray. God, I thank you for these people. I thank you for your word. Um, Thank you for Christ's death for us. I thank you that you help us reimagine that in new ways with new stories, that you enter us into that story together. God, I pray that as we live our life, we would see how that story is our story. We would see how we can live into the story that you've created. How we're continuing and furthering it out of the same vein, with the same truth, the same values, that we're creating a new story, but a story that echoes perfectly you. That would be our goal. That would be our dream, God. I pray that for these people today. In Jesus' name, amen.